right. Well, hello there, guys. Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Stonehouse Church. And um, as Nathan just read for us, we're in the book of Daniel. Uh, this is week number two in a new series called A People Planted, where we're taking a look at what it means to live on mission uh, in a place and in a time that wants nothing to do with God, uh, similar to the life that Daniel was experiencing in Babylon, uh, which was uh, the time of exile uh, that he experienced. And um, I believe we've got last week's message up online. If, if, uh, if This series would be probably pretty helpful to, to track along as we, as we go, so I encourage you, if you miss any, to catch up online and, uh, and listen to those. Um, so we're going to look at this, uh, this kind of this world that Daniel has found himself in, uh, Daniel and his friends, uh, and compare and contrast a little bit that world with ourselves and the world that we live in, uh, and kind of dig into uh, further understand what it is that uh, we need to understand um, to live in these times, um, because times are a changing, as people typically like to say. I guess that's more of a country thing. I don't know. Um, where did that come from? We need to pray. We need to pray soon. Uh, so what am I missing? All right. Anyway, uh, earlier we announced that our city groups are back. Uh, great, great way to connect to folks in the church. So we highly encourage you to look into uh, connecting in city groups. We've got them all over town, north uh, and west, and kind of here in the middle of the city. Um, also want to put out a call for volunteers. We continue to need help uh, watching kids, taking care of setup, tear down, different things in the church here. Um, if you want to contribute, please let us know. We'd love to have you. Smiling faces, greeting people at the door, uh, lovely people who can go through a background check and pass and then watch the kids, that kind of thing that we need to have happen. Uh, so please reach out, let us know. Uh, you can stop me after service, stop Jason, who was up here leading wonderfully in uh, place of the three that he's used to leading with. Um, and then also uh, just get on our website and fill out a contact form as well. Let us know you're interested uh, in doing that. Um, all right, so last week we said this. As we began this series, we looked at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and we also looked at Jeremiah 29, um, I think verses 7 to 14 or something like that. Uh, and, and, and the basic statement that we tried to wrap our minds around last week was that there is a, uh, a greater story, right? There's a, a grand narrative that is unfolding in all of history. And that in control of that greater story, uh, sovereign over that grand narrative is the Lord of all creation, and that no matter what we find ourselves in the middle of, okay, either personally or corporately as a people or culturally as a, a nation or a people group, no matter what we find ourselves in the middle of, God has brought that to pass. Now, that's a very difficult statement for us to wrestle through uh, intellectually. If you were in a city group, maybe you were able to play that out a little bit more last week through discussion. It's complicated. It's difficult. Often it's above our intellect because we think, okay, if there's evil, how can God be over that? And, and, and that big kind of wrestling match that's going on. And we understand that really for God to be involved in any aspect of human history, that it's always going to take his meddling with the affairs of evil men and women because there is nothing else to meddle with other than evil. There is no good. Uh, and we'll dig into that a little bit more for him to grab a hold of. He always has to deal with fallen creatures. That's the only thing available to him. And so he's always working 
uh, in the midst of all of these things. And so we understand that that greater story is going on, and that helps us to understand that there is always a purpose and a plan, uh, even though we often can't see it, that God is bringing about through dark and evil times. Right? And we see Daniel as one of the prime examples in the Old Testament of that, Daniel and his friends and, and those who were sent into exile, because they were God's people displaced by the hand of the Lord, right? A difficult statement we had to wrestle with, displaced by the hand of the Lord uh, through the wickedness of a nasty king and brought into a godless society, right? And in the midst of that godless society, God writes them a letter through the prophet Jeremiah and says to them, you're going to be here a while, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to conduct your lives. I want you to give your sons and daughters in marriage. I want you to build houses and plant gardens. I want you to plant oak trees and plan on them to grow and get big and give you shade. I want you to invest in the city and seek its welfare or uh, its peace, basically, shalom. Uh, and, I, and I want you to find the good in that city because in its prospering, you also will prosper. And that's what God said of Babylon, which, by the way, in uh, prophetic literature, Babylon is the nickname for all of the worst evil that mankind has ever contrived of. In Revelation, the angel declares, fallen has Babylon, or Babylon the Great has fallen, just a, a large statement that says, now finally all of mankind's evil is coming to an end. And so if there's a worse, it's Babylon, right? We might look at our scenario and say, man, this is pretty bad, yeah. Always we can look at Babylon and say it's the nickname for the evilest of the evil. And so therefore we know that our time can be uh, challenging, but it is definitely not like what Daniel found himself in. So we talked about that reality and how those truths strengthen us towards humility and wisdom as we live in this world uh, and also push us into a hope uh, that God is working uh, even in personal dark times, even in cultural dark times, uh, that he is working and that he is doing something grand. Uh, and so we look into that reality and we rest in that truth. Uh, and so we're, uh, this, this series is looking at this, this whole reality of living in the midst of kind of our own exile, our own Babylon, so to say, as we are the people of God who have been displaced into an alien home, so to say, a place that we don't belong in but that we're here in. Uh, and then what does that mean for us? Um, a lot of our cues are going to be coming from the book of Daniel, though we're not specifically going to be walking verse by verse through all of Daniel. Um, and we're also taking some cues from a book by Larry Osborne called Thriving in Babylon. Um, so I know a bunch of people that grabbed this this week um, and maybe started reading it and uh, would encourage that as we go along. Uh, this week we're looking a little bit at Daniel 1 and also we'll take some cues from chapter 1 and 3 in that book um, as well. And then we're also looking at some commandments for missionaries that a British missionary to India wrote some 200 years ago and taking cues from him, uh, trying to learn what does it mean to live as missionaries here and now. So I'm going to read a portion of our passage again, not the whole thing, but starting in verse 17. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into this um, as God leads. So here we go, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. 
And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray and ask God for some help. Lord, we need you today, uh, like we do every day. Um, We thank you for the Lord's day. We thank you for uh, the freedom to gather in this place. Um, Help us, Lord, not to take it for granted, but also to be um, just grateful for what you've given us. Um, Lord, we... (sighs) We live in a time that uh, many would decry as uh, as a worse time than ever. And um, while this may be true for our generation, I, I know that it's not true historically uh, in all of the world, God, that uh, you have chosen through all of time and all of history uh, and all nations and places to put your people in dark times and dark places for many a reasons. Um, and God, we know that ultimately... Uh, the great reason for you to put us in strange places among strange peoples and among alien cultures is that we would be used by you as ambassadors of a kingdom that is greater than all the kingdoms of this world, that we might speak the truth of God and declare the gospel to those who are lost and floundering. God, to those who find themselves in their own darknesses but cannot and will not admit it. Um, Lord, you have drawn us out to make us your people and to put in us your spirit that we might be different and that we might be used by your hand to bring about your great glory. And Lord, we're doing that here in St. Pete in 2018. Um, and Lord, we need your help in understanding. We need your spirit to give us wisdom and guidance. Uh, we need boldness and we need courage. And we pray that as we come to further grasp uh, the truth of your word, uh, that it would equip us and enable us to do these things to the glory of God. Lord, we need you even this morning. Tune our ears to hear you. Tune our eyes to see Jesus. May we know the greatest missionary who ever lived is our Savior and Lord who gave his life for us. And may his life and his death and his resurrection filter into every part of this conversation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to talk this morning about culture. And when I talk about culture, I'm not talking about high culture. I'm not talking about those achievements that display our greatest intellect. I'm talking about basically the, the kind of ethos that a people create when they live together in a place and in a time. Okay, I'm talking about that, the, the customs and the habits, uh, some of the widely held beliefs and experiences that people share in a particular area. Okay? And for us, often when we talk of culture, we may be talking of American culture, we may be talking of Floridian culture, and we may also be talking about St. Pete culture. Um, but what, widely what we're speaking of is those things that typify a group of people. Right? We're basically talking about what people do. That's what we're saying when we talk about culture. And so if that word is just kind of unfamiliar or maybe it's typically used for you in a different context, understand that's what we're saying when we say we're living in this culture. We're talking about this place with the things that these people do that are around us and that even us, we participate and contribute to in our time and space. And so when we look at the culture around us, um, and when we talk about the culture around us, you need to know, especially here at Stonehouse Church, we're not like posturing ourselves in a culture war, okay? We, we kind of dismiss that concept and that idea that it's 
our job as Christian people to take back our land. Like that, that idea is not really biblical and, and, and philosophically we don't really agree with that idea because there, a, a country can't be a Christian. Um, it's people that can be Christians in a country. And so we're not after a kind of a, a fisticuff with the culture around us. We're not posturing ourselves in an arrogant stance that says, we're good, you're bad, therefore get good like us. Uh, the gospel leads us to believe that there is only one good, and that good is God and God alone. That if this were a Western, it's a simple illustration, but I use it all the time. If there were a Western, there's only one guy in a white hat with a badge on, and that's Jesus, right? All the rest of us are in dark with dark hats and black uh, horses, and we're, we're the dirty down scoundrels, right? And so God alone is good, and so therefore we as God's people don't position ourselves as good, but we position ourselves as being given grace by a good God. And that changes everything about the way that we speak to our culture and about our culture, okay? And so that's just, that's really important for you to kind of grasp and, and get a hold of as that we as a people aren't here to have a fight, Right? And that when I talk about them and they, it's not with arrogance and anger, but it's with softness and tenderness and a broken, bleeding heart that says, man, if it weren't for the grace of God, that's me. Right? That's the best lens to look at the culture around us. And so we're not interested in kind of this culture battle uh, and, and speaking in aggressive and anger-filled tones, but rather we're, we're seeking understanding uh, we're seeking to have a humble posture that would read the culture around us in a biblical manner, uh, and most importantly, that we would read ourselves first in a biblical manner so that we can engage culture in a way that God would lead us to. And so, like we did last week, last week we went all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3. We looked at the glory of God's creation, we looked at the fall of man, and we looked at God's pursuit of mankind as the baseline for what all mission is. Because we have a God who pursues sinners, right? This is the God of the Bible who did not sit back when Adam and Eve sinned and just folded his arms and said, well, there goes the planet. He engaged with Adam and Eve. He said, son, where are you? Not like he didn't know where he was, but like, hey, come out because I'm pursuing you. And in that pursuit, it required that God sacrifice an animal to clothe them more appropriately than they had clothed themselves. And so that was a foretaste of what would happen at the cross with Jesus clothing us in his righteousness. So from the beginning, we see this pursuit of a loving God who's been on mission all along and that we simply emulate and follow that, right? And so we had this theological framework that we had to kind of lay last week in order to understand the, the great mission in general and kind of the story of God altogether. And this week, if we're going to understand uh, ourselves rightly, if we're going to understand culture rightly, we kind of have to do a theological framework again. And that theological framework is what does it mean to belong to God? What does it mean to follow Jesus and to be saved or to have salvation or to be given grace by God, whatever phrase we want to use? What does that mean and what does that do to make people, human beings, different from one another? Because we believe, the Bible teaches us, that there is a fundamental difference between those who have been changed by the grace of God and those who have not. And that fundamental difference has everything to do with how we view the world that we're in. And if we mess that up, we're going to mess up everything. 
because we're going to look at ourselves wrongly and therefore look at the world around us incorrectly. And so we're going to trace through some theological stuff in Romans and in 1 Corinthians to help us understand this. And basically, we talked about this last week, God created everything and, and saw that it was good, created mankind and called that very good, and mankind rebelled and sinned against God. And therefore, through Adam's fall, all of us have been wrapped up into the story of rebellion against our Creator. By birth and by choice, we are sinners. That is who we are when we're born, and that is what we choose to do once we get the first moment to make a choice, which, you know, like moms and dads, right now, you didn't have to teach that. We see very early on in our being that we reject authority, we reject wisdom, we reject those things that are set above us, and we do the same with God. And so in Romans 3, Paul's uncovering this great story of the gospel, and starting in verse 9 through 18, he, he, just, he, he quotes some Old Testament scripture, and, and he, he really drives this point home that we are fallen and broken sinners, and none of us are righteous. In verse 9, it says this, What then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now that verse has tremendous implications if we call ourselves Christians. We might as well just switch the word Christian, non-Christian there and say, are Christians better off? No. We believe that we are fallen too. We know that we are. How is that true? As it is written, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is excruciatingly clear. All men run away from God. That if we are left to ourselves, we are hopeless. There is no one righteous, not a single one. We are helpless and we are far from God, but like we saw last week, what has God done to a helpless people who are far from him? He has ran after them. He has run after them. This is the pursuing, loving God who says, you are mine, and though you are far from me and you continue to turn your back towards me, I will run towards you. To what extent? To the cost of his own son's life. And we see that in Jesus Christ, the pursuit of God results in the death of God. That it took the extreme for God to redeem and reconcile a people who were far from him. And so we know then that God's work to redeem us and restore us is his doing, and it sets us apart because of his strength and his power. Now the reality of salvation and when it comes to our hearts and souls and we see the old testament prophets speak of this truth and paul as well repeated again and again is that there is a new nature uh, ezekiel says there's an exchange of of rock stone hard hearts to fleshy malleable tender hearts that god says that i will put my spirit into these people uh that just tremendous uh, implications of having the righteousness and the holiness and the glory of God put into us so that we might be made a new people. And so this work is something that only God can do and that we surrender to when His Spirit 
arrests our souls and gives us these new hearts. And in the confession that Jesus is Lord and the acknowledgement of our own sin and fallenness and the humility to say, I need a Savior that is other than me and other than this world can provide. I must have one that comes only from God. There's a transformation that happens. And in that transformation, we see the bifurcation of all peoples. Those who have new hearts that are fleshy and malleable in the hands of God and those who remain in their rebellion with stone-cold hearts pursuing the deeds of the flesh rather than pursuing the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11 talks about this difference. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. Hmm. You notice that's a passive action there? You were washed. Like my dog hates the bath, but the dog gets the bath. Why? Because I go grab the dog, I put the dog in the shower, and I scrub the dog because the dog stinks. The dog was washed. It was passive in the whole thing. It just sat there. You know, trying to run away the entire time and was washed by me. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so if we're to understand why the world is the way the world is, we have to understand that there are those who've been washed and those who haven't been washed. And when we see that this is a passive thing, that this is something we receive, a gift of God's grace, right? Something we have not deserved and cannot earn, that it's been given to us like this, it changes everything about the way we see those who haven't been washed. Because we go, I was, like Paul says here in this passage, such were some of you. It changes everything about the way that we see the world. And a little bit further in 1 Corinthians, one more, cha- one more few uh, passage of verses. Verse 2, verses 12 through 16, shows us an even more clear picture of what has happened in this work of salvation. It says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths, to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things that are the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we see here Paul delineating between what it looks like to learn and to hear from God and to be trained by God. That there is a distinct spirit that comes to those who are of God and that through that spirit we are able to see the truth. We are able to learn the truth. We are able to to discern spiritual things. And those who do not have the spirit of God, he says, is the natural man. And the natural man looks at the spiritual things and says, that's stupid. That's silliness. Right? And Paul's very clear in Romans that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. That those who have not been saved by the grace of God look at the gospel as a stupid story. And it is only by the grace of God and the giving of His Spirit that would alert our hearts and awaken our lives to see, man, this is wisdom. 
This is true power. This is the glory of God displayed in weakness because God himself came as a man and was killed and died for you and me. That, the beauty of that story is only available to those who have been alert to it by the Spirit of God and by his work. And so we see that man has no hope without God and that we too are just like all of those who have not yet been changed by God except for the fact that we've been born not of flesh but of water, as Jesus said, just the washing that makes us new. And we know that God is the one who pursues these lost women and men through Jesus, the one who he sent so that through him we might receive forgiveness and reconciliation. And because of his work in us, then therefore we are given spiritual wisdom to lead a life in obedience to God's word. You and I have not the capacity in our own selves to follow God's word. We must have aid from he who gives it by his spirit to even discern, to even discern, to even just put together the idea that this is a good idea to follow after God. We need his spirit just to know what's right and what's truly wrong. We need him to give us the power to live into that truth. And so to an extent, a sinner who has no faith to live in obedience to the Lord, they're just simply living out the natural tendency of all humankind. They have not yet been given the Spirit of God. They have not yet been rescued from their sins because they have not yet seen the truth, and therefore they're left still in darkness. Now we have to say one more thing about those who have not been given this wisdom from heaven, and that is that God gives what theologians call common grace. And common grace is found in the idea that the rain falls on the wicked and on the righteous, right? That, that uh, there are certain truths about living in, uh, in God's world that, that work for everybody, right? And so whether, uh, whether a natural man or a spiritual man work, they both earn through their working, Right? Whether a natural person or a spiritual person uh, seeks shelter under a home, they're both going to have the benefit of a home. Whether a natural person or a spiritual person farms the land, they're both going to reap a harvest, and so on and so forth. And so we see a common grace. And one of the common graces that we see is the creation of culture. And that was actually a mandate given to Adam and Eve at the beginning. He said, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. It was what is called the cultural mandate. Basically, God said, make the world. <laughs> I've made the world, now make the world. Right? Because God didn't make cities, man made cities. And we know God builds the house, and if the builder doesn't, right, they labor in vain. We understand that. But that through our hands, sinner and saint alike, God works to build the world. And so amongst us, we see the common graces of culture. We see the common graces of art. We see the common graces of government, of finance, of family, right? Of society, of law, of order, of morality, of conscience. We see all of these common graces, and they're shared by all of us, even though we have these differing experiences of our spiritual lives. Does that make sense? And so in that common grace, we are actually called, like we see Daniel here in the letter that Jeremiah wrote, we are actually called to participate with all the world in those common graces to build a better place. And we can actually find in some places in our culture partnerships with those who do not even follow God that we can actually build together, 
right? It's really interesting that, that God allows this to happen for the greater flourishing of humankind. And we read it in our closing last week in Acts chapter 17 that he determines all the places and the boundaries with, uh, where they eventually live so that they might reach out and find God. The whole point of human culture continuing to thrive and continuing to grow is that people would reach out and seek and find God. That's why. Because more knowing him and following him and worshiping him brings him more glory. And that's good for our lives. And so we understand that this world is filled with people going about their everyday lives, both in cooperation and, and participation with God and in hostility and anger against God. And we're walking on the safe pavement, same pavement. We're paying the same tolls and taxes. We're opening the same doors and businesses. We're, we're together in this world, and God has dropped us into the middle of this so that we might seek out his fame in this place. And so this understanding of the types of people that live in the world have, has a lot of effect on the way that we live in a kind of dark and godless culture. It kind of makes sense, right? You go, oh, well, they, they, they don't want anything to do with God. And they reject his truth and his foundations and his manner of life. And so therefore, it kind of makes sense then that this is where we find ourselves because we're seeking to build our own empire rather than submitting to a good king in his kingdom. And so we look around the world like Daniel looked around his world and we go, oh, well, that's the natural consequence. That's the way the world would go as long as people are running away from God. And Larry Osborne says this about the life of Daniel early in his book. He says, when it comes to the book of Daniel, his incredible example of how to live and thrive in the most godless of environments is the main lesson we don't want to miss. It's a template that's particularly relevant today. And so Daniel's life in a godless culture shows us so much about how to live our lives also in a godless culture, right? And now when we talk about living our lives in a godless culture, we're not talking about trying to get back what we once had. We're just, we're dealing with what we have now and we're moving forward towards what God's going to do, right? We're not here to, to dream of yesteryear and to think, oh, if it were only like it once was, right? Like every generation could do that and they'd all be wrong because it's never really that great, right? We just have a whole new kind of not great to deal with, right? So we get to move on towards whatever God is going to do in our time and place. And so two things about Daniel and his friends that we can glean from this passage that we're reading today is that Daniel and his friends are both faithful and free, okay? They're faithful to remain dedicated to God in a godless culture, okay? And then they're free to engage the culture in meaningful and visible ways, okay? They're both faithful and free. So the faithful part, verses 8 through 16, uh, Daniel and, and the food that's supposed to come to him, uh, they're supposed to, to feast from the king's table, right? And Daniel and his friends are Jewish boys who grew up with Jewish uh, dietary laws and restrictions, and they're, they're shown the king's table, and they said, this is what you're going to eat. Right? And we talked about this last week, too. They're given different names as well. And so there are, there are uh, aspects of their captivity in Babylon that are trying to rob them of their identity as God's people. Okay? 
So first they get new names. Daniel had uh, historical biblical meaning, uh, and then uh, what Belshazzar, whatever his name ends up being, basically is like the nickname for the prince of Satan. I mean, it's like that's basically what the empire is trying to do to these guys is pull them out of their historical culture and plant them in a new culture with new names and new surroundings and try to kind of erase the memory of, of the God of Israel from them. So that happens through the naming thing, and that kind of also happens through the food. Now, there's a lot of kind of reading between the lines here with the food thing, and, and there's pr- probably been way too much written about this, to be honest. Um, so more than likely, more than likely, there's a combination of things going on here at the king's table. Number one, there's probably non-kosher food, more than likely. Okay, so that means the king's eating pigs and shellfish, right? So that's probably going on. Also, what's probably going on is that there's food offered to idols that then is plopped on the king's table, okay? Another defilement, so to say, that, that a, a Jewish boy would look at and just go, oh, I'll never defile myself with that, right? So those things are going on. And probably also, some commentators talk about this, there's probably also just an exuberance uh, and an abundance and an affluence to the culture there that would lead towards um, basically o- o- obesity and kind of just gorging oneself, just constant feasting, uh, constant drunkenness, uh, just, you know, like just that's what food was to a godless culture. Rather than in the culture of Israel that would lead people to worship, it was a culture that would lead people to just lose themselves in food, right? And so we've probably got a combination of these things going on, and Daniel and his friends look and say, we're not going to defile ourselves. We want to remain faithful to God. Uh, We also don't want to participate in idol worship, and we refuse to get comfortable here, right? We refuse to lounge at the king's table and fatten ourselves and get lazy, okay? So there's kind of a combination of things going on, and the, the result is the guy's like, man, if I don't feed you food, the king's going to kill me. And of course, Daniel says, well, just test us. And then we see this great insertion of God's faithfulness in the midst of Daniel's effort, right? Because this wasn't all Daniel and his friends. This was Daniel and his friends and God giving a great amount of assistance because they ate vegetables and water and were looking better, right, at the end of the day than the other guys, right? And so that was an, an effort towards faithfulness that these men engaged in as they were pulled into a culture and essentially tried to be made just one of us, right? And so they refuse that identity grabbing and they seek after being faithful to God. Now we'll talk about application to us in a minute, but let's move on to the free part. Daniel 1.17. We've read it a few times. These, these youth, God gave them wisdom and skill and learning. Uh, we know because of what we read last week in um, verses 1 through 7, that it was going to be a three-year training school for these Jewish boys. And so basically they were pulled into this other culture and trained for three years. And in all of this, we see Daniel uh, and his friends actually get involved. We see them engage in a training in a godless place, uh, seeking to get as best educated as they could in what they were given to learn and understand right? And now this isn't just like, okay, well, they were kind of more Eastern and now they're a little more Western. No, this was, the guys that were really well trained in this stuff were called magicians and enchanters. That's the king's best dudes. That's what they were called. So that's the kind of stuff that these guys were being trained in, is magicianry and enchantery. That's the learning and the education. This wasn't just learning a new language and learning a new history. 
This was learning about new gods, learning about a false religion, learning about possibly like dark arts and some really confusing, messy stuff, right? And they, they actually learned it. And they learned it so well that they stood out among, among everybody, right? And they learned it so well that even when they were brought before the king and kind of quizzed and asked more about everything that they had been taught, they rose up above the top even of the best magicians and enchanters. So they were free to engage in what probably to us would seem like an inappropriate educational system, right? Like sometimes we bellyache about the schools and, you know, blah, 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 and stuff like that. Like, I don't know, I, I think this was worse. And, and these guys, they engaged in it. And not only did they engage, but they excelled, right? That's, that's really interesting that they had both the desire to stay faithful to God and maintain their identity as children of the God of Jacob, right? The God of Abraham, the God of I. They wanted to remain faithful, but they also saw that this was what they had to do. This is what at this time they were given to do, and they even had the letter from Jeremiah that said, yo, get on with it. Seek the prospering of the city that you're in. Engage in the culture and learn and grow. And so God even added his grace to their work to learn in that he gave them this understanding. And we also see that to Daniel, he gave the understanding of dreams, which made Daniel stand out even more in the later chapters. We see him interpreting dreams and getting the king's attention in further ways. Paul Wagner says this, that God placed them in a unique position where they could be a blessing to their captors and build up the society in which they found themselves while at the same time enabling them to remain true to him amid extraordinary pressures. I believe this is a great pattern for our lives. As we consider our culture and our setting, and we're going to dig into this more in the following weeks, but we know that we live amidst a culture that is rejecting God more and more because that's what those people who are still in the flesh do. Right? That's our theological foundation for understanding that. We know we're in that kind of an environment. Still, even though that's true, we can seek wisdom and understanding. We can both try and with the assistance of God be faithful to him and also be free to engage the culture around him. So really practically, what's some ways to be faithful to God in the midst of a godless culture? Well, number one is that his word is still with us. This has not been taken from us, right? And so to remain faithful to God is to say, God, I want your voice highest in priority and in authority in my life. There are many voices in this culture. I might even be, be drowning in a godless training educational system. I might, I might be told all sorts of lies, but I want your truth to be the first truth I go to and the truth that is authoritative in my life. So we listen to God's voice above all the voices of our culture. Another way to remain faithful to God in the midst of a godless culture is to view the things of this world the way that God would have us view them, right? And we talk about this all the time, that we would look at our possessions in the light of God so that we would know they don't belong to us. They're not going to fulfill us. They belong to God, and God's gifted them to us so that we might use them for His glory. Things like people and money and jobs, uh, enjoyments like art and entertainment, 
the gift of sex and marriage and family, all of these things we should see in the light of the way God has given them to us, not in the way that the world says they are given to us. Now that's tough, right? Because we're swimming in messages about what all these things mean for us. And most of the time, what God says about them is different than what the world says about them. And so we have to learn to discern that difference through God's word. That's what it means to remain faithful to God. I think repenting of our sins is a way to be faithful to God. That we in the church own our own failures, we own our own sins and rebellion, and that we repent to God and to one another of our sins. And this is a tough one. It kind of smacks us in the face here in American Christianity especially, and that is that we reject the temptation to treat the church as entertainment, that we look at it the way that God gave it, right? As a bride to be cherished and as a people to belong to rather than just an event to get entertained by, right? Because that's kind of the atmosphere that we live in, that that's the way things are. And so to remain faithful to God would be to pursue these things. And I think freedom to engage in the culture in meaningful ways, just some really uh, practical ways we do that, is that we learn the literature and wisdom of the world. Right? How many of you got a college degree? How many graduated high school? Right? Get on with it. Absolutely. And be the best. There's absolutely no reason that we shouldn't learn what this world is teaching and be the best at it. Daniel gives us an amazing example. Are you being trained in the occult? In witchcraft? I didn't think so. Like, we're, we're blessed to be able to participate in these things, and they're a common grace from God, right? Architecture and education and, and medicine and all these, they're, they're a part of the common grace that God's given, them, given to us. Let's excel in learning. Let's excel in pursuing them. Also, to find our place in this society and to contribute like crazy. God's given you gifts. God's given you abilities, right? God's given you plans of business to pursue or education to pursue or or, or a particular life to go after, run towards those things. And while you do, do them the best of your ability and to the glory of God. We're also free to build relationships. We're free to be reliable and trustworthy and to love selflessly in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and in our families and in all the mixtures of spiritual and non-spiritual environments that we find ourselves in to pursue relationships there to pursue people, that they would know through us the goodness of a great God. One of the best things that we can do is that we can listen, that we can take the time to observe and to study not just the people around us, but the culture around us. This is so great what happened in Daniel and his friends' lives. They gained a perspective on the world that they never were able to have in Israel. God gifted them with that opportunity. It's interesting because it was godless, <laughs> at times brutal, but they gained wisdom that they could have never gained in Israel, right? Now that's complicated because we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God had all wisdom and so on and so forth. This is a common grace thing, right? There are things that you need to learn, that you should learn, and that you will learn that aren't going to be directly from the Bible. Go learn them, right? Pursue them and, and gain understanding on all the world through them and all along remaining faithful to God. 
One of the things in William Carey's Commandments of Mission is this. He says, learn everything you can about the lies and false, false hopes that doubters and seekers buy into every day. He was talking to missionaries in India. I changed his words a little bit. I mentioned that on the blog this week. If you didn't see that, I posted William Carey's 11 Commandments of Mission, so check that out. But this one, I changed a little bit just to talk about doubters and seekers in our time rather than pagans in his time. That's what he was talking about. But he said, do everything you can to learn about kind of the idolatry, kind of the spiritual trap that these people have found themselves in. And part of what gaining wisdom and understanding in this world is about is learning what it is that keeps people from seeking after God. Learning what it is that people trust in rather than trusting in God. Learning why people have hopes that have nothing to do with God. Learning why people have left the church or don't go to the church or will never return to the church or hate the church. Learning those things. Because it's valuable information so that we might have wisdom in conducting our lives before men. Daniel and his friends were given a tremendous opportunity to gain a perspective on the world that they wouldn't have elsewhere. And we too have that opportunity to learn everything we can about the lies and false hopes of those that surround us. This is ultimately the goal of engaging with our culture. If engagement, if, if engagement with our culture leads us further and further into frustration and bitterness and pride, then we need to go all the way back to the theological foundation, which is, how are you saved? How are you different? By God's grace alone. When we grasp that, and then we look at our evil time, we look at it with broken hearts. And listen, Facebook and Twitter and blah, blah, blah is not helping you with that. I love you, but it's true. And some of us take far too quickly to the keyboard before we're willing to sit down for coffee or have a lunch with or go to dinner with those that we would rail against. Might God create a people planted in St. Pete with humility and love for those who are lost in the dark. This is what Jesus did. Jesus is the great and better Daniel. Daniel's a good dude, but he didn't do it all the way. Jesus did it all the way. The one who knew nothing but glory and goodness and perfection left it all to pursue us. And where did he end up? In a sick and gross culture one of the vilest people that ever lived on this planet killed our Savior. Jesus moved so far into the culture to pursue us that he made himself vulnerable to be wounded. And that was all part of God's great plan set about since the foundations of the earth so that we, you and I might have the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from our sins. And so not only do we see a great example of a missionary in Jesus, but we also see a great substitute in Jesus that when we fail to be good missionaries, when we move more towards the anger and the frustration than towards the tenderness and, and, and the love, then we have a substitute who can forgive us of that sin and renew our hearts so that we might pursue the mission of God with courage and humility rather than that arrogance that calls people 
out in bad ways. And so we know that our ultimate example, that our ultimate substitute was one who was willing to go to the utmost extent to engage and to dive into a sinful culture so far without sinning. (laughs) Without sinning, he dove in so far. Friend of sinners, right? At dinner with Zacchaeus, right? Prostitutes crying because of how friendly he was to them. The untouchable touched by love. And the religious people ticked off to no end so that they participated with the godless culture to kill the Savior. That's our deepest hope. And listen, for some of us, there's some death that will happen similar to Jesus as we engage the culture. Reputation, money, suffering, hardship. And Jesus invites you into it that you might know him in the fellowship of his suffering and rejoice with him in the ultimate hope that he provides. So may you find Jesus more awe-inspiring than the world's culture. May his life and death be for you the fuel to your faithfulness. And may his forgiveness liberate you to engage the mission so that the fame of Jesus might spread through our weak little lives. God have mercy. Let's pray. Lord, you went further than any of us have ever been willing to go. And you went further than any of us ever will go in order to pursue lost and broken people. By your spirit, would you quicken our hearts and open our eyes to see the truth of the condition of the world apart from you and to be broken by it so much so that we would give up our comfort, that we would give up our money, that we would give up our status in order to love them like you've loved them. God, this is impossible without your help. And so we fall on our knees and we beg for help because we know the pain that this godless world is producing. We know the orphans. We know the abused. We know the neglected. We know those who have been sold false hopes and have pursued them to the end and found nothing. God, we rub shoulders with them. We eat with them. May we pray for them and bleed for them and give our lives that they might know there is a good, loving, gracious God who created them. Lord, help us. Help St. Pete through us. And God, would you give wisdom and grace in so many places that we need it. Thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.